0: Welcome to another episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one from our Heroes section is titled, The Untouchables. This story took weeks of research in getting to the unvarnished truth about federal agent Elliot Ness and his band of untouchables, men of utmost moral character who would not take bribes in a city that at the time was called the crime capital of the world, Chicago. And after looking into it, there was no doubt about placing this one in the heroes category. My research quickly reminded me that there's a tendency today for some writers to bring attention to themselves by finding negative stories about true heroes and sensationalizing the negative aspects to the point where you have to dig deep to find the truth. Maybe the long-running 50s Untouchables television series and the 1987 Kevin Costner, Sean Connery movie The Untouchables went over the top in portraying Ness as a flawless hero. And maybe the heavily fictionalized book written by Ness himself in his later life did the same. But lately, some writers have felt the need to tell the other side of the story about Eliot Ness. His life ran the full gamut, from a headline-garnering hero who became a national symbol for justice for over 25 years to an almost obscure relic of the past, barely remembered, having to cope with a retirement that took him far from the career he had thrived in, sipping scotch in a small Pennsylvania town bar and swapping stories with any locals who cared enough to listen and working a variety of side jobs for a few extra bucks. He ended up a victim not of the gangs he helped destroy, but of a heart attack, and in small part, at least, owing his exit from greatness to alcohol, which still claims some of the best and finest. He never lived to see his book published and would only rise to deserved stardom again after his death. You know about the books others have done, the TV show, and the movies. But I'll bet you didn't know he was Chester Gould's inspiration for the long-running comic strip Dick Tracy. When the ATF hired Elliot Ness to clean up Chicago, it wasn't long before they knew they had made the right decision. Raids against stills and breweries began immediately, and within six months, Ness claimed to have seized breweries worth over $1 million, the equivalent of 13600000 today. An extensive wiretapping operation was the main source of information for the raids. An attempt by Capone to bribe Ness's agents was seized on by Ness for publicity, leading to the media nickname, The Untouchables. And yes, Elliot Ness had flaws. And he had any number of setbacks in his later life. And we'll talk about them. But make no mistake about it, he was a huge hero to the people of Chicago, and later Cincinnati, and Cleveland. He brought sweeping changes to law enforcement nationwide, and his story deserves to be told. He took all the slings and arrows along with the praise, did it with class, and he was a hero to remember. And to be clear, he was never an FBI agent. He was a federal IRS agent assigned to enforce prohibition laws, later transferred to the Department of Justice as a prohibition agent, according to an FBI statement. This story tells the story of Chicago and how it came to be known as the crime capital of the world by the time Elliot Ness reached it in the late 1920s. And the story of one of the true heroes of law enforcement, Elliot Ness and the Untouchables. The city of Chicago, that title in town, as Frank Sinatra once put it in a song, is a city with a lot of stories. I can't think of a safer way to say it because when I ask a Chicagoan what Chicago is really like, expecting to get some dirt, they all tell me they love it. They love the nightclubs, the Cubs, the White Sox, the Blackhawks, the music, the old Chicago blues, the traditions, and God knows what else about it and can't understand why it's always gotten so much bad press a real head-scratcher, they say. And others say that Chicago only turned criminal during Prohibition, but that proposition is way off base. It started long before the bars closed. By 1930, the Depression had taken its toll on Chicago and its people. Bread lines lined the streets. Families starved. Cops were paid, on the average, about $90 a month to put their lives on the line every day. And it was a dangerous town. Some made twice that, simply by turning their heads now and then and looking the other way. The police chief made 200 a month. A hired gunman made 400 a month. Al Capone made about $500,000 a month, depending upon the year. Chicago in the 20s and 30s was a 24-hour crime circus. Many cops and politicians were on the take. Later they would say it wasn't out of greed, it was to keep their families safe. Surrendered SS after the fall of Berlin said basically the same thing. Gangsters in Chicago lived like kings. But sometimes all it takes is one honest man with a lot of courage to start turning things around. And turn they would with a man named Elliot Ness. But to really get an idea of what he accomplished, you need to look at what he was up against. And it was a mountain of no good that had been building for decades. Crime in Chicago didn't start in 1930 or with Prohibition. It already had a pretty good foothold before Elliot Ness got there. In 1850, Chicago had a population of 80,000 people, but the city had no police force. Only nine guys they called watch marshals to keep an eye on all those people. By 1855, this very thin line of police protection was expanded to create a bare-bones police force of about twice as many men, but this time as an organized force. So when you ask me, why Chicago for crime? Well, the answer is pretty clear. Not enough police when things got started and as they started to grow in crime. And consistently low pay. By 1858, there was another and bigger reason for Chicago's high crime. Because Chicago was built over a swamp, Mud constantly oozed from beneath the city's wooden streets. It was decided the whole city would be mud ten feet, and the city would rest on stilts with stones at the base. This actually led to the beginning of the freewheeling crime subculture that overtook Chicago. After the city was razed, criminals in the area began practicing their trades in rooms and tunnels beneath the city, which offered any number of good places to hide. Some of you might remember the 1986 TV special with Geraldo taking a team of photographers underground in Chicago to find Al Capone's buried vaults, a colossal non-event, but Rivera's career didn't suffer at all. In fact, the whole event proved that you can sell hype over reality any day if you do it right. The only thing he suffered from that was a sore wrist from signing ladies' underwear all that week with a special Sharpie. English immigrant Roger Plant, who ran a whorehouse in the Chicago netherworld called under the willows, became the chief of this 19th century criminal underworld. Roger Plant's resort at the northeast corner of Wells and Monroe was one of the wickedest vice resorts in the country in the 1860s. The police called it the barracks, but Roger called it under the willow because of a lone willow tree on the corner. There were about 60 rooms in the shacks that made up Roger's resort, and in them was practiced virtually every sort of vice and criminality known to man. There was a saloon, three brothels, and dens where young girls were broken in by a dozen men and then sold to bordellos. It was believed that a tunnel ran from the brothel under Wells Street to the vice dens by the Chicago River. This tunnel, which would have been the result of several subterranean rooms that were built when the city raised its level by 14 feet, and the term underground became coined as organized crime activity. You'll find as we progress there are a lot of crime terms that were actually coined in Chicago. There were also crime innovations. One of the tenants here was Sammy Caldwell, a burglar who is said to have been the first to gag and bind his victims with plaster and tape. Another notable from Chicago's early days of crime gave us some famous quotes. Irish immigrant Michael McDonald, who ran a four-story casino palace in the heart of the city known simply as The Store. When an employee asked McDonald how they could ever keep The Store filled to turn a profit, Knowing that people can usually only be fooled once, MacDonald allegedly responded, Don't worry about that. There's a sucker born every minute. MacDonald obtained the cooperation of the police force, politicians, and an army of skilled confidence men to run his rigged games. He's often credited for W.C. Field's favorite line, Never give a sucker an even break. MacDonald's criminal activities predated those of Al Capone and other Chicago gangsters, But it should be noted that he was able to corrupt the police force from a very early date. Then in 1860, Chicago's mayor, John Long John Wentworth, serving two non-consecutive two-year terms and apparently running a second time on a pro-crime ticket, reduced his police force to only 60 officers. This became an open invitation for criminals everywhere, turning Chicago into a sort of sanctuary city for the underworld. On October 8, 1871, The Great Chicago Fire burned for 36 hours, with much of the city's population losing everything, including 300 lives, and rampant looting ensued, although pickings were slim in those days. The fire destroyed roughly 3.3 square miles of Chicago and left more than 100,000 residents homeless. Many of them likely turned to crime to survive. The fire started at about 9 p.m. on October 8th, in or around a small barn belonging to the O'Leary family that bordered the alley behind 137 to Street. The shed attached to the barn was the first building to be consumed by the fire, but city officials never determined the exact cause of the blaze. There has, however, been much speculation over the years. The most popular tale blames Mrs. O'Leary's cow, who allegedly knocked over a lantern. Others state that a group of men were gambling inside the barn and knocked over a lantern. I tend to go with the story of the gamblers knocking over the lantern, as there were a lot of gamblers, and everybody was looking for ways to dump on the Irish back in those days. And we have this story, which I'll bet you've never heard. Anthony D. Bartolo reported evidence in the Chicago Tribune suggesting that Louis M. Cohn may have started the fire during a crap game. According to Cohn, on the night of the fire, he was gambling in the O'Leary's barn with one of their sons and some other neighborhood boys. When Mrs. O'Leary came out to the barn to chase the kids away at around 9 p.m., they knocked over a lantern in their flight, although Cone states that he paused long enough to scoop up the money. Following his death in 1942, Cone bequeathed $35,000, which was assigned by his executors to the Medial School of Journalism at Northwestern University. The bequest was given to the school on September 28, 1944, along with his confession. Sounds to me like he was trying to make amends for what he had done. Nevertheless, in 1956, the remaining structures on the original O'Leary property at 558 West to Coven Street were torn down for construction of the Chicago Fire Academy, a training facility for Chicago firefighters. Getting back to my defense of Mrs. O'Leary, she was the perfect scapegoat. She was a poor Irish Catholic immigrant. During the latter half of the 19th century, anti-Irish sentiment was strong throughout the U.S. and in Chicago as well. This was intensified as a result of the growing political power of the city's Irish population. The story was circulated in Chicago even before the flames had died out, and it was noted in the Chicago Tribune's first post-fire issue. In 1893, the reporter Michael Ahern retracted the Cowan Lantern story, admitting it was fabricated. But even his confession was unable to put the legend to rest. Although the O'Learys were never officially charged with starting the fire, the story became so ingrained in local lore that Chicago city council officially exonerated them, and the cow, in 1997. Not that the Irish didn't have a part in Chicago crime and politics in the years to come, not by a long shot, me buckos. Between 1879 and 1929, crime in Chicago was everywhere you looked, and everywhere you didn't want to look. Chicago, sorry New York, was the place to be and grow if you wanted to make a career out of any vice, and many were trying to do just that. I am going to list some of the more notable events and people that helped to make Chicago what some people think it is today, then bring you to Al Capone and the Roaring Twenties. The 30 years between 1890 and 1920 witnessed an explosion of crime in Chicago, and gave us some legendary crime lexicon, such as Jewish Northside gangster Jaime Weiss's Let's Take You for a One-Way Ride, and Mickey Finn, coined after Lone Star Saloon's Mickey Finn was found guilty slipping his customers a knockout pill so his employees could rob them. The Chicago White Sox became known as the Black Sox when a number of teammates threw the 1919 World Series against Cincinnati to make a few extra bucks. And they're still arguing today if Shoeless Joe Jackson was in on it or if he had just picked the wrong roommates. The words Syndicate, Chicago Typewriter, meaning Tommy Gun, Crime Machine, Political Machine, and Valentine's Day Massacre all originated in the Windy City. The word Pipe Dream, taking the goings-ons in Chicago's underground opium dens, first appeared in the Tribune in 1890. Bum rap appeared in 1913. Asswipe, jinx, gank, meaning to steal. Hoochie coochie, Cloud Nine, and smoke filled room, meaning the place where decisions are made in secret. And finally, racketeer, all came from the Chicago Tribune and Chicago writers, mostly between 1890 and 1940. In 1925, a well-known and wealthy Chicago mobster named Johnny Torrio decided to get out of the crime business while the getting was good and handed his entire enterprise to his trusted number two, a young, pudgy, scar-faced Italian from New York called Al Capone. Torrio advised Capone to keep a low profile, but that wasn't the way Capone operated, and Capone moved his headquarters to a plush suite in the Metropole Hotel in downtown Chicago. From there, he began living a luxurious and public lifestyle, spending money freely, although always in cash, to avoid a trail. Newspapers of the time estimated Capone's operations generated $100 million in revenue annually. The press followed Capone's every move with interest, and he was able to gain public sympathy with his gregarious and generous personality because he spread his money around so freely. Because he spread his money around so freely, some even considered him a kind of a Robin Hood figure, an image which would tarnish in later years as Capone's name increasingly became connected with brutal violence. Over the years, Capone consolidated control over most of Chicago's crime rackets by ruthlessly gunning down his rivals. In 1924, authorities counted some 16 gang-related murders. This brand of fitting out the competition continued until 1929, reaching a high of 64 murders in one year. In 1926, when two of Capone's sworn enemies were spotted in Cicero, Capone ordered his men to gun them down. Unbeknownst to Capone, William McSwiggin, known as the Hanging Prosecutor, who had tried to prosecute Capone for a previous murder, was with the two marked men, and all three were killed. This caused a public outrage, and justice was demanded. The police had no evidence for the murders, so instead they raided Capone's businesses, where they gathered documentation that would later be used to bolster charges against him of income tax evasion. In response, Capone called for a peace conference among the city's criminals, and an agreement was reached to stop the violence. It lasted just two months. By early 1929, Capone dominated the illegal liquor trade in Chicago but other racketeers vied for a piece of the profitable bootlegging business, and among them was Capone's longtime rival, Bugs Moran. Moran had previously tried to assassinate both Torio and Capone, and now he was after Capone's top hitman, machine gun Jack McGurn. As the story goes, Capone and McGurn decided to kill Moran. Moran was running his bootlegging operations mainly out of his auto garage on the north side of Chicago. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1929, witnesses reported seeing two cars, resembling the kind of cars that police would use for raids, pull up in front of Moran's garage while a number of men, dressed in shirts, ties, and overcoats, and carrying machine guns, went inside. It looked like a bust was going down. Machine gun fire was heard, then nothing. The men in overcoats then exited the building leading what looked like prisoners in front of them to the waiting cars. But instead of a bust, it was a mob hit. Seven members of Moran's operation had been gunned down while standing lined up, facing the wall of the garage. Some 70 rounds of ammunition were fired. When police officers from Chicago's 36th District arrived, they found seven members of Moran's operation dead, shot to rags. One gang member, Frank Gusenberg, was barely alive and in the few minutes before he died, they pressed him to reveal what had happened, but Gusenberg wouldn't, or couldn't, talk. Police could only find a few eyewitnesses, but eventually concluded that gunmen dressed as police officers had entered the garage and pretended to be arresting the men. Moran, the target of the hit, who was kept late at the local barbershop just blocks away, had miraculously survived it. Though Moran and others immediately blamed the massacre on Capone's gang, The famous gangster himself claimed to have been at his home in Florida at the time and said he didn't order it. No one was ever brought to trial for the killings. The murders still remain unsolved, although there are some good articles out there that claim to prove that the killer who led the operation wasn't taking orders from Capone and that this was a revenge hit on his part. When the headlines and the grisly photographs of the Valentine's Day massacres in Chicago reached the public and reached President Hoover, There was immediate outrage, and Hoover set about immediately to solve the crime problem in Chicago. Elliot Ness was one of those solutions. In 1929, Chicago native Elliot Ness returned to the city as a U.S. Bureau of Prohibition agent under the U.S. Treasury Department with his untouchables to try and stop the flow of illegal booze and bring down the Capone Empire. He was to become a legendary ATF agent and had a major hand in cleaning up three crime-ridden cities, Chicago, Cleveland, and Cincinnati. And he not only cleaned them up, he brought changes to the justice system that would have a positive effect on law enforcement nationwide. He was an innovator, as we will discuss in just a few minutes. Ness was born on April nineteenth, nineteen 1903, in Chicago, Illinois. His parents, both of whom were Norwegian immigrants, operated a bakery, As Elliot grew up, he played with his little nieces and nephews and enjoyed going to school. It was said that he took school so seriously that he dressed nicer than most children. This earned him a nickname of elegant mess on the playground. He was an avid reader and was fond of the stories of Sherlock Holmes. When he was graduated from Fenger High School on the south side of Chicago, he spent a year working in the Pullman plant before going to college at the University of Chicago. In 1925, he earned a diploma with a major in political science, commerce, and business administration, earning a place in the top 10% of his graduating class. He began his career as an investigator for the Retail Credit Company of Atlanta. He was assigned to the Chicago Territory, where he conducted background investigations for the purpose of credit information. He returned to the university to take a course in criminology, eventually earning a master's degree in that field. In 1926, Ness's brother-in-law, Alexander Jamie, an agent of the Bureau of Investigation, which later became the FBI in 1935, influenced Ness to enter law enforcement. Elliot took his advice and joined the U.S. Treasury Department in 1927, working with the 1,000-strong Bureau of Prohibition in Chicago. Following the election of President Herbert Hoover, U.S. Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon was specifically charged with bringing down gangster Al Capone. The federal government pursued his illegal activities in two areas, income tax evasion and violations of prohibition. Ness was chosen to head the operations under the National Prohibition Act, informally known as the Volstead Act, targeting the illegal breweries and supply routes of Capone. With corruption of Chicago's law enforcement agents epidemic, In 1929, Ness went through the records of all Prohibition agents to create a reliable team, initially of 50, later reduced to 15, and finally to just 11 men, and he called it the Untouchables. Ness once wrote of this, "'I ticked off the general qualities I desired, single, no older than 30, both the mental and physical stamina to work long hours,' and the courage and ability to use fist or gun and special investigative techniques. I needed a good telephone man, one who could tap a wire with speed and precision. I needed men who were excellent drivers, for much of our success would depend on how expertly they could trail the mob's cars and trucks. Also, I felt it might be well to have some fresh faces from other divisions who were not known to the Chicago mobsters. The initial nine, aside from Ness himself, were... Bill Gardner, the Native American member of the squad, an expert at undercover work, former athlete, former soldier, and lawyer. He was the oldest member at age 50. There was Lyle Chapman, a former Colgate University football player, tactician, and investigator. Barney Clunan, a muscular Irish agent known for his strength. Martin J. LaHart, another muscular Irish boxer and sports enthusiast. Thomas J. Friel, a former Pennsylvania state trooper. Mike King, a deceptively ordinary-looking analyst and tactician. Joseph Dickinson Leeson, an expert driver with the specialty of tailing. Paul W. Robsky, a short and unobtrusive wiretapping expert. He later collaborated with Oscar Fraley as Ness' head on The Untouchables before him, on The Last of the Untouchables, a companion book to Ness's own chronicles and Samuel M. Seeger, a former Sing Sing Death Row Corrections officer. Subsequent members of the team were Jim Seeley, a former private investigator. Al Wallpaper-Wolf, who was transferred to Chicago from the Kentucky Hills shortly after the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Also deserving of mention is Frank Basile, a former convict whom Ness reformed, but who was killed in action. Basile, who was Ness's friend, sometime assistant and driver, was often present at the brewery raids, even though technically he was not an agent. The job of the prohibition agents was critical to breaking down organized crime. From the enactment of the Volstead Act, prohibition agents hunted down bootleggers who were growing enormously powerful and rich by smuggling liquor into the United States, primarily from Canada and Europe. By the time Ness entered the service in 1926, Three of Treasury's six law enforcement arms, the Prohibition Unit, the Coast Guard, and Customs, were working together, sharing information, and conducting joint operations against what would be described today as a transnational organized crime threat. Criminal syndicates completely controlled the liquor industry. Assassinations, bombs, bullets, and corruption were routine. Every industry paid tribute, directly or indirectly, to bootleggers and gangsters who had forged such close ties with local authorities that anonymous Prohibition enforcement squads became necessary in some cities. Chicago was one of those cities. Chicago belonged entirely to Al Capone. The collective force of 3,000 police officers and 300 Prohibition agents failed to bring down Capone's empire. The lack of Prohibition convictions in a city as wet as Chicago only cemented the fact that Capone was buying protection from law enforcement. In 1930, two events not only changed the course of Ness's career, but also redirected federal law enforcement's trajectory in general and ATF's legacy in particular. First, the Bureau of Prohibition was transferred from the U.S. Department of Treasury to the U.S. Department of Justice. The Bureau's mission increasingly focused on fighting violent crime. This dangerous new mission began to clash with the Treasury Department's responsibility of ensuring tax compliance. This burgeoning enemy and increasingly treacherous terrain necessitated a more effective and coordinated law enforcement strategy. Treasury Department no longer had the means to direct this new focus. The Justice Department was the organization better suited to lead the Bureau of Prohibition in the fight against organized crime. The second event, simultaneous with the first, was President Herbert Hoover's directive to get Capone. Fed up with Capone's brazen and far-reaching arm of power and corruption, Hoover declared war against Capone and his outfit. This presidential declaration set in motion Chicago's U.S. attorney, George E.Q. Johnson's two-pronged investigative attack on Capone. One effort led by the Bureau of Prohibition Investigative Division's newly appointed special agent in charge, Elliot Ness, and his team of agents, who were ordered to cripple Capone's operations and gather evidence of prohibition violations. The other, led by lawmen Elmer Irie and Frank Wilson of the Internal Revenue Service, investigated Capone's finances for evidence of money laundering and tax evasion. Raids against illegal stills and breweries began immediately. Within six months, Nest claimed to have seized breweries worth over $1 million. The main source of information for the raids was an extensive wiretapping operation. An attempt by Capone to bribe Ness's agents was seized on by Ness for publicity, leading to the media nickname, The Untouchables. In David Leaf's 2014 article for the Daily Mail titled, The Cop Who Battled Al Capone But Was No Hollywood Hero, Leaf Explains. For weeks, the city of Chicago had been beset by driving winter blizzards so severe that the large truck which passed through its streets one freezing dawn in 1931 might easily have been mistaken for a snowplow. It certainly resembled one, but two clues suggested the huge arrowhead of metal welded to its front had a far more dramatic purpose than simply clearing the roads. One was the long line of black sedan cars which drew up behind it as it reached a disused warehouse in a suburb full of gambling dens and brothels. The other was the identity of the man who rode in the truck's passenger seat and was about to lead this convoy in a terrifying and startlingly dangerous operation. Pulling on the kind of protective leather helmet worn at the time by American football players, Elliot Ness was then an unknown government agent given the seemingly impossible task of bringing down Al Capone, the richest and most notorious mobster in Prohibition America. Capone's illicit breweries were known to be virtually impregnable, equipped with escape hatches through which hoodlums fled as enforcement agents outside banged helplessly with sledgehammers on the reinforced steel doors. But Ness was about to change all that. This would be his first operation using this specially designed battering ram, a secret weapon on which he had been working for weeks. When he gave the order, the driver jammed his foot on the accelerator and they crashed into the building's outer wooden doors, then through the steel shield beyond. The startled hoods inside didn't have time to draw their guns or put up a fight. As they were arrested and led away, Ness's agents smashed barrels and opened taps on the giant vats, leaving them wading ankle-deep in beery foam. Soon, similar rivers of alcohol would be flowing all over Chicago, with raid after raid reported on by the newspapers who hailed Ness as a fearless crusader against crime. In the early days, the squad tailed the lorries which collected empty beer barrels from speakeasies and returned them to Capone's breweries. Once they'd identified these warehouses, they busted one after the other with their battering ram. Before long, they had so dented Capone's profits that the gangster, who normally scoffed at the laws he drove around in his armored Cadillac with its bulletproof windows and holes through which to fire machine guns, was worried. Once, he tried to buy Ness off sending an envoy to offer to match his annual salary every month if he would just play along. Nest threw the man out of his office. Undeterred, Capone then tried to intimidate members of the squad, calling their offices and threatening whoever happened to answer the phone. His heavies also began turning up at their homes. Ness's own car was stolen twice, and one night he caught one of Capone's men lurking outside the home of his wife's parents, but he remained undaunted. The squad's effort seemed rewarded when in June 1931, just six months after its formation, Capone and his associates were indicted on more than 5,000 prohibition-related offenses. But after much legal wrangling, it was decided that it would be difficult to work up a jury's outrage over someone who had provided alcohol to willing customers. It was easier to have Capone found guilty of tax evasion. When he was sentenced to serve 11 years in the island prison Alcatraz that October, it was for cheating the government of the equivalent of $217,000. Nothing compared to what Capone had earned, but enough in those days to put him away for a long time. While Capone had become an obsession for Ness, it was only in court that he saw his nemesis in person for the first time. Realizing this fat little man, only three years older than him, was the quarry he had sought for so long, left him unexpectedly dejected. Did you ever think you wanted something more than anything else in the world and then, after you got it, it wasn't half as good as you expected? He asked a friend. Throughout his life he was prone to depression and he was wretched when, in February 1932, he discovered that Barney Clunan, one of his most trusted agents, had been taking payoffs from Al Capone's speakeasies all along. Despite his deep disappointment, Ness instigated no action against Clunan perhaps fearing any scandal might undermine the squad's credibility. But it must have taken the shine off his pride in leading the most trustworthy unit of men ever assembled to fight crime. Chicago would take ten years of Ness's life and turn him into a national figure. With the repeal of Prohibition in December of 1933, there was no longer a need for such a team, and his subsequent success as head of police in Cleveland, Ohio, then the most lawless city in America after Chicago, was overshadowed by personal scandal. The Capone tax trial was the result of a mountain of hard work done by George E.Q. Johnson and IRS agent Frank Wilson, whose investigations led to Capone's downfall. In a number of federal grand jury cases in 1931, Capone was charged with 22 counts of tax evasion and also 5,000 violations of the Volstead Act. On October 17, 1931, Capone was convicted on five of the tax evasion charges after the Volstead Act violations were dropped. He was sentenced to 11 years in prison and, following a failed appeal, began his sentence in 1932. Crucial evidence was provided by one of Capone's closest associates, lawyer Fast Eddie O'Hare, whose creative bookkeeping and legal assistance kept Capone and his men out of jail for years. But O'Hare could sense the end was coming, and the feds knew that O'Hare had one great joy in his life, his son Butch, who wanted to become a pilot. According to legend the feds offered a chance at Annapolis for young Butch if his dad would turn state's evidence on Capone. And O'Hare agreed. Butch went to Annapolis, became a top pilot, and served in World War II, earning a medal of honor for his courage. His dad was killed while driving from work in Chicago when two of Capone's men pulled up alongside and shot him with sawed-off shotguns. The next time you fly through Chicago's O'Hare Airport, remember the son who saved the family name by becoming a larger-than-life hero and one of Chicago's stories of redemption. Our long-time listeners will remember a 1001 Heroes episode in which we tell this story and give Paul Harvey the tribute for his radio piece on the story of Butch O'Hare. Ness was promoted to Chief Investigator of the Prohibition Bureau for Cincinnati in 1932. Following the end of Prohibition in 1933, he was assigned as an alcohol tax agent in the Moonshine Mountains of Southern Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee, and that's what landed him in Cincinnati. Soon after, he was promoted to assistant investigator in charge of the Cincinnati office. The newly organized ATU faced grave problems across the nation. The country was ill-prepared to reestablish the legal liquor industry as criminal syndicates continued to illegally produce and distribute distilled spirits. Organized crime escalated as gangs battled viciously for control of underground distilleries and distribution networks. Machine guns continued to be the weapon of choice. Gangsters killed each other on street corners, in social clubs, and in restaurants. The massacres often resulted in the injury or death of innocent bystanders. The ATU, under the leadership of the fearless Elliot Ness, seized many alcohol distilleries in the first few months after its creation. With growing support from the public, the hard work of the ATU slowly began to pay off. The ATU managed to dismantle large liquor syndicates, changing the perception of federal law enforcement as well as the attitudes of prosecutors, juries, and the courts. By now, with a stellar reputation of being town cleaner, Ness was transferred to Cleveland, Ohio. In December 1935, Cleveland Mayor Harold Burton hired him as the city's safety director, which put him in charge of both the police and fire departments. There, he headed a campaign to clean out police corruption and to modernize the fire department. This article, written in 1996 by author Bob Rich, titled Ness, a Mr. Clean Cleveland Desperately Needed. Written for The Plain Dealer, Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland's own G-Man, Elliot Ness, came to town in the summer of 1934 as head of the Treasury Department's alcohol tax unit. He had achieved celebrity as the chief of a special justice department task force that had literally battered down the doors of Al Capone's breweries and warehouses in Chicago during Prohibition. But it would be many years later, long after Ness was dead, before a book and TV show would make him into a near-mythical lawman. Cleveland had a new mayor, Harold Burton, who, when he couldn't get the Republican Party's endorsement, ran as an independent Republican and won. Burton appointed the 32-year-old Ness as his safety director in charge of a thoroughly demoralized force of 2,400 policemen and firemen. Times had changed since Cleveland's men in blue were the recognized model for the country under Mayor Tom Johnson. Now, with the worst oppression in history in full bloom, there were hundreds of homeless people, panhandlers, prostitutes, and robbers. Gambling was wide open, labor extortion common, the police rackets at full blast. Cops looked and acted the way they felt, slovenly and unkempt. Sometimes they were informants, and even enforcers for mob figures. In December of 1935, author Stephen Nichol quoted Ness as telling the Cleveland Advertising Club, In any city where corruption continues, it follows that some officers are playing ball with the underworld. If town officials are committed to a program of protection, police work becomes exceedingly difficult, and the officer on the beat, being discouraged from his duty, decides it is best to see as little crime as possible. Ness went on to explain that while he personally wasn't against gambling, Profits from illegal gambling opened the door to drug dealing, prostitution, and union racketeering. Quite a mouthful for a young man who many locals considered not tough enough to be a top cop, with his college boy good looks, university education, and low-key manner. They began to believe him when he transferred 122 policemen, including a captain and 27 lieutenants, and replaced the head of the detective bureau. Ness captured Cleveland's affection, when he made a flamboyant and courageous raid on the Harvard Club in Newburgh Heights, a notorious gambling club operating openly with police protection, one month after his appointment as safety director. He had been called in by the county prosecutor, even though the club was out of the city limits, and moved against it as a private citizen, accompanied by police and his newspaper reporter friends. Now, with the city solidly behind him, Ness put together a team of volunteer detectives and police, Cleveland's own group of untouchables, and went after corruption in the police force. He used wiretaps, informers, subpoenaed bank accounts, the same tools of the trade he'd used against Al Capone in Chicago. Grand jury indictments, trials, and convictions followed. Later, juries would send labor extortionists to jail, leading to anti-union charges against Ness. The AFL investigated and decided that Ness was only against labor racketeering, Ness instituted a professional training program for police and reformed the traffic division leading to Cleveland being rated the safest city in the United States by the National Safety Council. Many evenings on his own time, he met with youth gang leaders and social workers. He fought to get city funding of playgrounds and basketball courts for Cleveland's youth. Keep them off the streets and keep them busy. It's much better to spend a lot of time and money keeping them straight than it is to spend even more time and money catching them in the wrong and then trying to set them straight. As a result of his programs, there was an 80% drop in juvenile delinquency. In 1938, Ness's personal life was completely transformed, while his career began to have some ups and downs. He concentrated heavily on his work, which may have contributed to his divorce that year from his first wife, Edna Staley. He declared war on the mob, and his primary targets included... Big Angelo Leonardo, Moe Dalitz, John Angarola, George Angersola, and Charles Polizzi. Ness also overhauled the fire department, arranging for new equipment to replace an aging inventory that included leaky hoses and such antiquities as one hook and ladder so decrepit it could only climb hills in reverse. In battling crime, Ness's early effort at the Harvard Club was repeated with greater success at gambling joints inside the city limits. But in one case, involving a surgeon's skill and a madman's terror, Ness failed, perhaps opening the first chinks in his seemingly invincible armor and public persona. Newspapers dubbed the criminal the Mad Butcher and Torso Murderer for his technique of severing off the limbs and heads of 12 victims left scattered across greater Cleveland from 1935 to 1938. Ness responded with the largest manhunt in Cleveland history, but the killer was never apprehended. One writer, Stephen Nickel, author of the 1989 book Torso, believes the old Chicago Dazzle just didn't cut it with serial murderers. He didn't know how to handle it. When you take on mobsters, you find out where the alcohol is. You break down the door and you make the bust. But with this, he didn't know how to approach it, Nickel says. In the end, Ness probably did what he could and just came up short, he adds. I know it bothered him, and I know it bothered the public and probably added to the disenchantment and the crumbling of his public image in Cleveland which is unfair, really, because he did a lot of good for that city. Max Collins, author of four novels about Ness, believes the crime fighter may have actually solved the case, but at a crippling cost to his honor. One popular theory has Ness discovering that the killer was a member of a prominent local family. Lacking sufficient evidence to prosecute the man, Ness supposedly cut a deal in which the suspect was committed to a mental institution for life. Collins says Ness may have been forced into the deal by the same local movers and shakers who funded his undercover anti-corruption campaign. When they presented the bill, when Ness had to cover up the identity of the butcher because it came from a well-to-do family, that would have been a staggering blow to him. As chief of the federal alcohol tax unit for Northern Ohio, Ness had closed an average of one still a day. In Cleveland, Ness started his cleanup with characteristic verve, He first slapped five high police department officials in the penitentiary for bribery and graft, then instituted a scientific rookie training school for policemen. Revising the traffic control system, he cut auto accident deaths in half. During Ness's first 18 months on the job, Cleveland's total crimes dropped 25%. When Ness took on the mob and sent two high-ranking mob figures to the pen, the papers said, Director Ness lifted fear from the hearts of honest men. Cleveland is a better, cleaner, and more wholesome place, a safer place in which to do business. Not only was Ness concerned with the efficiency of the police officers on the street and traffic concerns, he also knew that more modern equipment was needed for the police force. In an article that Ness wrote for the American City Magazine, he wrote that centralization and intensive utilization of two-way radio, radio telegraph, Teletype and the teletypewriter increases the speed and efficiency of police communications beyond anything believed possible. In the fall of that year, Ness had fallen in love and was ready to marry again after being single for only 10 months. In October of 1939, he married Evelyn McAndrews, a well liked and a very popular socialite around Cleveland. Evelyn had a career as a fashion artist. After their marriage, they moved into a boathouse in the Clifton Lagoons that was owned by the Stauffer brothers. The third floor had windows on all sides and afforded Evelyn a comfortable place to work on her sketches for the major department stores in Cleveland. They both enjoyed dining and dancing at the popular hotel ballrooms of Cleveland, and they would often stay late. The constant partying and drinking that Ness and Evelyn were enjoying did take its toll early one winter morning when they were returning home from a long night of drinking. Ness's car went into a long skid and hit another car, the driver of which recognized Ness's license plate, and the accident was front-page news the next day. This did not bode well with Cleveland's new mayor, Frank Lausch, and Ness had to give up his badge, parting company with Cleveland, and heading for Washington, D.C. In 1942, the government needed a high-profile spokesperson to warn recruits about the dangers of venereal disease. Ness agreed to accept the part-time position as a consultant to the Federal Social Protection Program. Critics chided Ness for his long absences as he traveled to government offices in New York and Washington, as well as military bases around the country, preaching abstinence and safe sex. Ness became the national director for the Federal Social Protection Program. When the war ended in 1945, he became chairman of the board for the Diebold Safe and Lock Company in Canton, Ohio. He also formed an import-export business with his friend Dan Tyler Moore, Jr., former director of the Securities and Exchange Commission. His travels almost paralleled those of his wife because Evelyn was equally busy traveling to Washington and New York to meet with her publishers. But the distance between them grew to be too much, and they were quietly divorced on November 17, 1945. In 1955, when traveling to New York City, Ness became acquainted with Oscar Fraley, a sports writer who took an interest in the stories of Ness's days in Chicago. Fraley persuaded Ness to work with him on an account of his experiences battling Chicago's bootleggers. The Western Reserve Historical Society Library in Cleveland has the 21-page double-spaced memoirs that Elliot Ness typed and sent to Oscar Fraley. When Ness saw the galley edition of the book, his pride wouldn't agree to the text Fraley had submitted. Ness signed off on all rights to the book, thinking that it wouldn't be the success that Fraley thought it would. In a telephone conversation with the author in 1998, an aging Fraley said he knew the book would be a bestseller. When asked why he went ahead with the book, knowing Ness didn't approve, he said, Tough. I knew it would be a success, and if he didn't like it, he could sign off on it. And he did. On May sixteenth, 1957, at 5.15 p.m., Elliot Ness died in his home in Cootersport, PA from a heart attack. His estate showed over $8,000 in debt. Ness never knew how popular his story would become and that Desilu Productions would buy the rights to air the TV series that starred Robert Stack in the lead role. His widow and third wife, Elizabeth, could only afford to have Elliot cremated and brought back to Cleveland where she lived in Cleveland Heights. A memorial service was held for him at the Church of the Covenant on Euclid Avenue. His ashes were kept by his son, Robert, who was only ten years old when Elliot died. Later books and biographies would portray Ness as a flawed hero and reveal more sordid details of his marriages and his failures, which we have left out here, while still managing, I believe, to paint a fair picture of a man whose courage cleaned up three very tough cities and provided inspiration for young men who wanted to get into law enforcement when they grew older. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Thanks for listening, and if you haven't tried our sister show, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, it's at iTunes and all the others. We place the link up in the show notes for you. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.